Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Happy Thanksgiving. It is Thursday, November 24th. Live from my apartment in his attic, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. I am DJ Nate, filling in for the one and only Dr. D. Today in the show, we have Chicago reader, editor, Enrique Limon. And now, your host, Chicago reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Turkey Conversation Thursday. And here's why. Well, actually, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to break the fourth wall. That's me smashing the fourth wall. It is not technically Thursday. I'm pretending it's Thursday. All right, I'm pre-recording the show before Thursday because I'm not working on Thanksgiving unless you call working on a turkey working. So this is a conversation before Thanksgiving, but we're going to pretend it's on Thanksgiving. And my theme that I open up with is conversations that you might want to have around the Thanksgiving table on political topics. There you go. Nothing, nothing more uh, fun than engaging your uncle or aunt or your uh, father or your brother who loves a Trumper with some interesting Thanksgiving conversations. I have two suggestions, ladies and gentlemen. One uh, is from the front page of the New York Times, Saturday, November 19th. That's uh, when we're doing this recording. And it talks about how uh, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, has appointed a special counsel to lead two Trump inquiries. Uh, And uh, Trump has immediately responded by saying, it's fake news. It's a witch hunt. It's like a record that just constantly repeats itself. They're looking specifically into how it came to be that thousands and thousands of supposedly uh, top secret files or files that should not have been uh, released to the public wound up in the basement of Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting little uh, inquiry. And then the ongoing, never-ending inquiry into what Donald Trump knew and when did he know it about the January 6th insurrection. Uh, So they're going to turn that over uh, to Jack Smith, a former attorney, uh, excuse me, the, f- uh, the former head of the Justice Department's public uh, integrity section on the grounds that, follow me this, that Donald Trump uh, has already announced that he is going to run for president in 2024. And uh, President Joe Biden has pretty much let everybody know that he's going to run for re-election again in 2024, uh, much to the consternation of many people in the Democratic Party, a topic for another time. If you want to talk about that at your turkey table, you can talk about that as well. If it's just a bunch of Democrats sitting around, you can haggle that one out. Uh, I know we'll be talking about that a lot uh, in the months to come. So anyway, so uh, a special uh, prosecutor was appointed, Jack Smith, because it would they don't want any conflict of interest, potential conflict of interest between Merrick Garland, who's directly answerable to uh, President Biden uh, and the chain of command uh, in Washington. So this is a special prosecutor who will be free to take the investigation wherever it goes. Uh, Trump's response is this. I have been going through this for six years for six, (laughs) the pity in this comment. I mean, I should be doing this while sobbing. I have been going through this for six years for six years. I've been going through this and I am not going to go through it anymore. He told Fox news. And I hope the Republicans have the courage to fight this. That's the sentence you can have a discussion about, uh, at Turkey time. I'll repeat that sentence. I hope the Republicans have the courage to fight this right now. Some of the smarter minds, and I know people are going to really haggle with me over the use of the word smarter minds and Republicans, but the smarter minds in the Republican Party want to distance themselves from Donald Trump. And yet, the key to the success of MAGA is this notion of martyrdom, that somehow or other they're being picked on because they're MAGA. And they've been picked on by the elite, like the deep state. Reporters, because it's got all these lists of people that are picking on them. And that drives MAGA. So even when Donald Trump lost the 2020 presidential election to Joe Biden, they had to say it was stolen from him. 
Now, here we are two years later. They've been repeating these lies and uh, just sort of like uh, rolling in their own self-pity for all these years. And now they decided, you know, maybe it's a good idea to leave the lies and Trump self-pity alone as we move ahead and anoint, I don't know, Ron DeSantis to be the next leader of MAGA. Because we can't win over swing voters in suburban DuPage County or Lake County or suburban Milwaukee or suburban Virginia, wherever, if we keep insisting that Donald Trump is our leader and we will follow him wherever we go. We have to distance himself from Donald Trump. And yet, as we all know, the real heart and soul of MAGA, all those little MAGAites, they love Donald Trump. They're going to buy into this notion that, yes, he's being picked on again. So what do the Republicans do? Here's the conversation, ladies and gentlemen, over your cranberry sauce and your stuffing and your turkey and your mashed potatoes and the gravy, whatever else you're eating. What do Republicans do? On one hand, they're saying we have to move on. That's yesterday's news. Forget it, Trump. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. We don't want to hear it. On the other hand, the driving momentum in the Republican Party is to feel sorry for yourself and feel as though you are being victimized by this secret state that Donald Trump has been telling you about for the last six years. I'm like, Republicans, I don't know what to tell you. Usually I have sound advice for Republicans, which none of them ever follow. Why would they follow my advice? Some old lefty guy in his attic. But really, this I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, this is a problem for the Republican Party. Donald Trump will be feeling sorry for himself for the next six months and be talking about it around the clock. And I'll be going on Fox TV if they'll have. There's a question. Will Fox TV have Donald Trump to come on and feel sorry for himself when he's the subject of investigation? At the same time that Rupert Murdoch, the head of Fox TV, has said, enough with Donald Trump. The New York Post, which is Rupert Murdoch's chief paper, says, forget Donald Trump. They barely gave any attention whatsoever to his announcement because they've come to the conclusion they cannot win uh, in swing districts. They cannot win in key st swing states with Donald Trump at the top of the party. And yet, Donald Trump is being prosecuted. So are they suddenly going to flip and say there is no secret state? Is that where they're going to go? Are they going to say, Donald Trump, be quiet. We don't want to hear about your, your, your crimes anymore. Are they going to abandon the MAGA chief? I, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. I would say I feel sorry for him, but I don't feel sorry for him. <laughs> they deserve it. All right. That's something. I got a couple other things I could talk about, but I've delivered so much on that one. I'm going to hold off on my discussion about the Reverend Schenk. I don't know if you saw this one, ladies and gentlemen. This story just broke, uh, who is apparently um, now a whistleblower. He used to be fiercely uh, anti-abortion. Uh, and uh, now he's kind of come, had a, a, a transformation. This is another topic you might talk about at Turkey. Although, I don't know, talking abortion politics and turkey dinner, I'm not sure about that one. But, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I know I'll be talking about this in the days to come. Just check out uh, Reverend Schenk. Uh, the New York Times just broke a story about it. Apparently, he had access to a Supreme Court ruling, uh, ruling in um, Hobby Lobby, the famous Hobby Lobby case. Uh, and so this is an investigation that will be ongoing. All right, so maybe you don't want to have an abortion conversation at Thanksgiving dinner. That might get people throwing their turkey wings at each other. Uh, so uh, I'll move on from that as a potential topic. All right, without uh, further ado, I'm going to introduce my Thanksgiving, my special Thanksgiving uh, guest who has been so nice uh, to take, well, I would say take time from his Thanksgiving table, except this is being recorded on a Saturday. <laughs> so he's taking time from his pre-Thanksgiving table uh, Enrique uh, Limon, who's the new editor of my beloved, my beloved uh, Chicago reader. So technically, he's my boss. So you know what? Let's get him some pizza and turkey, all right? Let's take care of a boss the way you should take care of a boss. Seriously, Enrique, welcome to the reader. Welcome to my uh, podcast. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure and an honor. That's all I can say. Uh, so we met for the first time. Uh, was earlier this week on Zoom. So I guess technically we haven't really even met, but we may have had a Zoom meeting. Uh, and you were giving me bits and pieces of your background. And I was just like trying to figure out, like based on your background, how in the world did you <laughs> wind up in the world of alternative newspapers? Right. Let alone right. the Chicago Reader. Let alone uh, is, all the yeah. way up in Chicago. 
you know, it was a long and winding road. I, I was actually that that weird kid who grew up reading alt weeklies, and and they were the barometer of cool for me and like places that I didn't have access to um, because of my age or because of my geographical location or or whatever the case might be. But I always appreciated them. So before we had an alternative to the alternative in San Diego, because I grew up in Tijuana, Mexico, right across the border, we had the San Diego Reader. Uh, which was sort of, in a way, a sister paper to the Chicago Reader. So just in, in picking up the Reader every Wednesday, um, I came to to find out that, you know, this was, the, the, it had been a Chicago Reader, and then it had sort of like several offshoots, and one of them had been in L.A., which had disappeared. The other one was in San Diego, which is still standing. And the San Diego Reader wasn't that alternative from a point of view, but it sort of like opened up a window to me as to, this this crazy world of what was known, you know, back in the days, the underground press. Uh, eventually, another weekly came about in San Diego, uh, and I joined its ranks, San Diego City Beat, uh, rest in peace. And and then from there, you know, it was all about the climb. I managed to weasel my way into a weekly column, and and then from there, you know, maybe a feature here and there, cover story. Um, I really wanted. I, I just I I felt that I belonged there. I felt that I found, you know a place with like the dissidents and the weirdos. And, um, you know, unfortunately there wasn't a space for me to make my way up the masthead there. So eventually I found myself in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the weekly there for four or five years. Then from there, Salt Lake city of all places, uh, where I became, um, managing editor and shortly after editor in chief. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster, but I've always sort of had the the reader, the Chicago reader, in the back of my my mind because I uh, I spent just one of my best summers ever in Chicago. I mean, you know, nothing beats summer in Chicago. And so back in in 2009, I was there on a Medill fellowship, and I saw then um, the grip that the reader had on the local zeitgeist, and I dreamt of joining it ever since. And now here we are. Right. Let's go back. Uh, let's go back. Uh, let's go back uh, because you said something, and I have to follow up on it. Uh, so I can kind of relate uh, to what you said. But if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, you grew up in Mexico. Did I hear that correct? That you were on the Mexican side of the, the yep. border with California. Uh, so even at a, how young were you growing up in Mexico when you picked up on alternative newspapers, oh, a culture of alternative newspapers? Maybe like ten, eleven, twelve. Damn. Yeah. How did you find your way to all, <laughs> old know, right? newspapers? I mean, oh, is, and this is like the eighties or the, when was yeah, this? Yeah, eighties, nineties. Like my dad was was um, was a newspaper man, and my dad owned a printing shop, and so I grew up in that world. I grew up in the world of of, of independent books and newspapers, and um, you know, he launched a few newspapers in in Mexico as well. A couple of which are still standing. So it was just very second nature for me. You know, we had we had all the newspapers delivered to the house. Uh, including the San Diego Union. So, you know, it was about that duality. When you're raised in the border, it's all about that duality. It's all about that sort of innate code switching. You know, you have to be your most American self on the U.S. side of the border and then your most Mexican self on, you know, the Southern side. So you learn to adapt and you become a little bit of a chameleon. And that sort of spilled over onto my media consumption habits when I was a kid. You know, the radio was always in English. The, the TV was mostly in English. Uh, print media was, was, you know, back and forth, English and Spanish. And so um, it was just always a part of our day-to-day, just sort of media consumption. When you talk about duality uh, and having to exist in two separate worlds, did your parents give you the duality speech uh, that so many like uh, black parents in America give their kids? Did, did that exist uh, in your household? Or was it just taken for granted that you would know how to, you know, adapt? Yeah. It was sort of assumed, you know, it was sort of assumed because our life was split between both sides of the border. And so, um, again, you just had to rely on, you know, you, you, you just had to adapt yourself to um, perhaps not stand out that much on, on the U.S. side, even when we were in southern San Diego, which is a very Latino heavy population. But but yeah, I, I remember some instances that were unsavory people screaming things at myself and, and my mom because we were speaking Spanish which why wouldn't I speak Spanish with my own mom? Um, but, but, you know, all in all, I, I, I took the, the positive side of it, which is again, just having these, these, these two humongous influences, you know, we're in the, the 
regular person has like one reference point for film, movies, music, et cetera, that really shape their lives. I'm lucky enough to have two. So what so, were some of the, the films, mo- music and movies that shaped your life as a young man? Oh God, everything, you know, whatever movie came out, I, I went to the movies every weekend. Uh, that was sort of my escape as a little kid and like in middle school with my best friend, Denise, who's, uh, you know, as Mexican as I am, but her name was Denise. And so she got, whenever we would leave the movie and would order a hot dog or something or, or go out to lunch after as kids, uh, and they would call the name on the speaker she was Denise. And so no one really like raised an eyebrow. And then all of a sudden it was, how do you, and Reich and Rick and Rack, you know, this was before Enrique Iglesias opened a few doors for me, uh, in the, in, in pop culture. So, uh, yeah, no, it was every single movie that came out, every single movie that you can imagine, I would just go see because, you know, and sometimes we would like sneak into a second one because why not? <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but I, lo- I mean, yeah, that was sort of our thing. You know, we'd have either our parents drop us off or sometimes if we were brave enough, and this is in middle school, like I would never let my middle school, middle schooler do this, but we would take the trolley. So essentially, you know, we would take the L by ourselves. Um, as kids, um, uh, in San Isidro, like the, the, the last stop or the first stop, you know, depending on how you see it, uh, and then just go up and, and lose ourselves and watch whatever movie had just come out. We loved it. We loved it. So were you a Quentin Tarantino fan? Oh yes, 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 yes. Big. Yes. I, I loved, uh, you know, obviously Kill Bill, everything, you know, to this day, I have a confession. I have never watched Pulp Fiction in its entirety. But I've watched every single other movie, you know, that he's done. Isn't that weird? No, I don't know. It's weird. I, what? Why? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't think I've ever, because that, whatever that window was, yeah, I, I, I didn't see it. But I remember like watching Kill Bill on opening weekend, one and two, uh, all that. Well, I mean, I don't want to make this a Quentin Tarantino uh, conversation, but I just had this vision of you watching Quentin Tarantino as a kid. I don't know why. Uh, and, uh, but. I have a very similar thing with, uh, I call him QT, like we're friends. Uh, but I have a similar thing. Like when Q, when Pulp Fiction came out, I was a very, uh, I, I was like in this real child rearing phase of my existence, Enrique. So like it was all about my kids who were very, very young at the time. And so I would, I did see Pulp Fiction and I didn't like it at all. And I'm like, I'm through with this guy. It's too violent. I, I think it was, I was very vulnerable as a, a, a young father with young kids. Uh, and then I watched Pulp Fiction years later after my kids had grown up. I'm like, oh my God, what a great flick. I can't believe I didn't like it. I've now seen it like three or four times. And there's parts of it that are just completely over the top that I can't stand if I ever see it again. Like I'll just fast forward through it. Like just some weird stuff with the Bruce Dern thing. But anyway, neither here nor there. The point is, is like it's like different phases of your life. Like if you're exposed to something, you're not ready for it, you fight it, you resist it, you hate it. And all of a sudden the light goes on like in the next phase of your life. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Yeah. So that's kind of how it happened with me. Uh, All right. uh, So I watched uh, an interview that you did uh, with uh, Channel 11, uh, WTTW, about uh, your new uh, gig at The Reader. And um, it was a great interview. So I'll give a shout out to the guy who interviewed you. But <laughs> as an old reader guy who's been around the reader forever, I hear these. The reader was once this great institution. People met their lovers. They found jobs. And now, and now it's just this is a little ragged. And nobody pays attention to it anymore. What are you going to do about that? Okay, that's not literally what they say. But you know what I'm saying, Enrique? It's kind of embedded in that. I got like a little chip on my shoulder. You know what I'm saying? It's like a little embedded with that. Do you think I'm overreacting to the public's attitude about uh, the, the evolution of the Chicago reader and the whole role of the alternative press? Absolutely not. I mean, I feel it myself. We, we can't help, you know, when you're in it, you can't help but to take it at least a little bit personally, right? When I started out, actually, in, in San Diego City Beat back in the day, um, I don't know how long that was, 15, 16 years ago, um, I was already doing other things in media. Um, you know, it was the height of the blogs. Everyone had a blog, and I was on radio, and I was, uh, you know, Tijuana's uh, uh, answer to Ryan Seacrest on television. Like, I was doing my own thing. Um, but that was the height of the, the print is dead, print is dead, print. And I just remember hearing print is dead. Um, and, and I thought, well, 
you know, this is shit. I, I better get into print. It's, it's going away. And I sort of like want to add that to my toolbox. I didn't know that it was going to be this, this, you know, extended visit where, and I would still be in it. But, um, you know, since then, look at everything that's happened and look at just all the changes in the media landscape and the reader still stands. And there's a reason for that. I think that, you know, I mentioned the sort of like tactile feel of having like an actual product and, and there might, you know, there might be like some sort of like retro triggers that go off in your brain. But really, the one thing that doesn't go out of style or the one thing that, that doesn't align with any trends is just real on the ground shoe leather journalism which has been the hallmark of the, of the reader for, you know, 51 years. So, um, yes, the media landscape has, has, uh, changed, um, in the past few years, that's across the board, but the reader still stands. And the fact that five decades later, it's still the barometer for all things happening in Chicago is a testament really to the paper's indomitable spirit and the resilience of its staff. I've always thought uh, alternative, and when you have an alternative newspaper, uh, means that the most basic definition of the word alternative, it's just a different view. It's a different way of approaching. So that's kind of how I've viewed it. Um, that's what's drawn me uh, to the reader and alternative journalism. Um, so I get to find it in what I do, but I'd love to hear uh, your definition and your thoughts of what it means to be different in journalism in 2022, to have a different view, an alternative view. Uh, how is that defined in your mind in the year 2022? Yeah. Well, I think alternative just means that, that you're doing things differently and you're going against a grain. Um, so, you know, having the experience of being in a market like Salt Lake City, Utah, which, you know, undoubtedly is one of the whitest markets perhaps in, in the country. I, I really stood out, and there is also a, a predominant religion here um, with the LDS Church. So for me, taking the helm of the weekly there meant, okay, I'm going to provide a space for people who are different, who feel different, because I know that feeling, for people across the LGBTQ spectrum, for black and brown people who don't see themselves represented in media. And so I, I very much force open those avenues to make sure that that they knew that they had a space so that to me was alternative because i didn't see other outlets doing it i didn't see the the daily doing it i didn't see that our second daily which is owned by the church doing it so um i took it upon myself to to do that and 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 something as simple as you know featuring black and brown folks on the cover of like a yearly city guide or, um, you know, as the opener for, for your best of issue, which is usually, you know, the, the biggest issue of the year that any, any outlet like ours produces. So little changes like that. Um, and then um, writing stories that didn't other uh, LGBTQ people and that didn't necessarily have to have a tragic ending. I think that, that was important as well. So you see yourself as sort of like, um, you know, a normalizer of, of, of this experience. And that to me was was a great distinction as to what I was doing and what other people across other media were doing. Um, now it can mean anything, but but really, um, to me, the spirit, the current spirit of alts, you know, alts were born during this counterculture movement in the 60s and the 70s. Okay, what is our current counterculture moment? And, and, and how do we properly reflect it? And I think that creating those spaces for people who historically haven't had um, you know, the avenues to, to participate, to contribute, to write, to be featured in publications, for example, is, is a big one for me. So that's something that I've always pushed for across my, my career, creating those avenues for people like me. Now, just let's pause to think about this Salt Lake City. I, I kind of passed over that uh, portion of your career. So we have to go back to <laughs> that is so deep and wild. Uh, and, and, I want to apologize to everybody in the state of Utah uh, for what I'm about to reveal. Uh, I do have biases about Salt Lake City. I've never been there. I said this to you, Enrique, when we were talking earlier. I've never been to Salt Lake City, so maybe one day I will go there and I'll see that the world is not how I see it. So my humblest apologies to the people uh, in Utah uh, and in Salt Lake City, in particular when I admit that I have biases about their conservative attitudes, uh, which are to me, symbolized by the people they elect to office, like Orrin Hatch or Mitt Romney. Okay, Salt Lake City. So, you know, I mean, the track record is there, okay? It's not as though you're electing Bernie Sanders uh, as your senator, just saying. Look, I'm already arguing with them after I apologize, Enrique. Um, so when you did these stories uh, in, uh, in Utah and Salt Lake City, 
where you uh, offered alternative takes or alternative voices. What was the response of people in Salt Lake City? Was it just beloved by the people in the alternative communities that you were profiling or uh, giving voice to? Or did you have a sense that people outside those communities, sort of the majority of people in uh, Salt Lake City, were also responding positively to what you were writing? Both. Both. I think that that there was a big um, sigh of of relief. Um, You know, one of the things that I learned early on that really affected me and was, was a big driver behind my coverage was that um, Salt Lake City and, and Utah in general holds among the top spots for LGBTQ suicide. And so, you know, that's something that that um, affects me deeply because I've, I've, I've seen the effects of it. So there was, there was a, a great wave of, of just, yes, of, of, of thank you. And, and sometimes very, very, um, very muted thank yous, very small thank yous that, that meant so much because that was the first time that that you know that person had seen themselves reflected in in our coverage or in coverage in general to a certain degree local coverage um and then of course you you have the trolls and and you have the people who just brand you like a lefty liberal you know whatever you know non-serious non-journalism and you know all all the different labels that they try to just like throw at you so you know it was all about again just highlighting the positive trying to um you know tune out the negative as, as much as there was negative as much as possible. And then just, just take it from there. I mean, one, I had a relentless troll in Salt Lake, relentless email, you know, phone, um, across our social media channels. And then, um, I was the only outlet covering, uh, a protest outside, um, a, a regional sort of like, uh, police headquarters here in Utah. And, uh, against uh, uh, you know uh, police brutality, someone who had been who had been killed, and this guy showed up in the protest, and he tased this elderly man, and then he started wielding a gun, and so in, I was the only one there, the only one covering it, because by then you know people thought that you know George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, etc., was old news when it wasn't. It was a catalyst of so much that was that was under the surface and still going on. Um, and so um, I remember being there and then all of a sudden all the different, you know, outlets in town hitting me up to use my videos and my pictures because people had just stopped paying attention. And I was just there because I, I felt great affinity with the cause. And it wasn't until a couple of days later um, that, you know, the, the police report was filed, et cetera. And this guy, he was the guy. He was the guy who sent me all those those messages because I was like, OK, I know that name. Um, you know, I I to a certain extent, just to have record of him. Like I published him in one of his comments and in the letters from the, to the editor section a couple of times, just so I'm like, you know, this guy exists. Uh, he's out there. He was that guy. So yes, um, there are instances like that. Uh, but there was overwhelmingly a, a positive response to what it was that, that I brought to the table. Wow. So the guy who uh, was trolling you, writing abusive emails uh, and hate emails to you uh, showed up, at this public rally with a gun? Yep. A taser and a gun. Whoa. Yeah. It was something else. I mean, it was one of the times, cause I felt it. I felt it multiple times. I mean, you know, uh, uh, again, before George, George Floyd in, in, in 2017 here in, in Salt Lake, there was the, the police murder of, of a gentleman by the name, Patrick Harmon. And, um, same thing. Who would pay attention to him? Why? Um, he was driving down one of the main avenues here, state street with a busted, um, light on his bicycle and that's why he was stopped and that's what led to um all the events that led to his police you know shooting murder um and um i i embedded myself in in the movement early on uh, because you know salt lake city isn't dc isn't chicago isn't dallas if there is any market any city wherein the importance of a black lives matter movement is not just important, but extremely important, it would be here because black and brown communities have never had that. And so I, I, I lent myself in, in whatever free time that I had to cover. I mean, gosh, I don't know how many protests, vigils, uh, calls to action I've, I've covered across, across the, the streets in, in Salt Lake City, maybe, I don't know, 60, 80, 100, I don't even know. I'm, I've lost track. But um, but I decided again early on that that was part of whatever quote unquote power that I had 
or platform that I had to really lend attention to 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 these in, these horrible instances that that were happening in in a city that has a reputation for being Pleasantville, for being you know uh, under this this niceness of, of of this veneer of niceness. There's there's a lot that goes on in a place like Salt Lake City. That's what drew me to to the job here. So um, so yeah, it's it, it was it was a wild ride. It was a wild ride. Wow, you embedded yourself into the Black Lives Matter movement. Let's think about this, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in Salt Lake City. Were there any, I mean, again, defying all biases and prejudices, the, the, I, I think a lot of people in Chicago probably never even know that there was such a movement in Salt Lake City based on their biases about what Salt Lake City is. Were there any mainstream newspaper journalists also embedded in it, or were you alone in terms of being the only journalist who was routinely and regularly uh, attending uh, rallies and meetings, et cetera, and so no, forth. There were some. I think that I was because I was so in tune into it. I was the one who knew about all of them going on. So I was sort of like omnipresent. And then it was funny because then I would tweet about it. And then, you know, 25 minutes later, the, the social justice reporter from the Daily huffing and puffing, you know, running there uh, <laughs> would show up outside the governor's mansion for a die-in or would show up outside the, the you know, the, the district attorney's office for, for the spilling of red paint outside his office. Like, you know, it was funny sometimes, but no, there, there's some great people here, but early on, you know, particularly in, in the Patrick Harmon case, I, I, I was, I was proud that I was able to give his family the solace that, that his life mattered because the police had just tried to, to, to brandish him like, you know, a person from the street, a homeless person who didn't have any family, all his family drove down, you know, packed up a van and, and drove down from, from the Carolinas for one of the protests. And, and by then, thanks on, on a little bit of the push that I'd given it, but really it was all about the activism community and the push that they had given it. Um, outlets like Vice Media and NBC News descended upon Salt Lake City to cover it. So I, I felt proud that I was, if not the only one, because um, there are some, some great people here on the ground, I was definitely, I think, a catalyst for it. And so, so that's something, that, that's a feather in my cap for sure. One of the things I've noted uh, here in Chicago, the Chicagoland area, and Illinois as a whole, actually, uh, is that the um, we talk about this in the show all the time, uh, uh, Enrique, is that uh, the summer of 2020, uh, where Black Lives Matter protesters took the streets all over the country, uh, has resulted in a backlash. Uh, a backlash uh, that it's still being felt. It's will it, in so many ways the the upcoming mayoral election in the city of Chicago will be an expression of the backlash. We could see it already in the rhetoric of some of the candidates who are trying to uh, blemish the leftier candidates in the race by saying they're defund the police. This is Mayor Lori Lightfoot's been saying this from the get-go. She's now like defining herself as an anti-defund the policer, which is so wild. Uh, to think, because if you know uh, folks that my listeners know what I'm talking about, she ran as a progressive on criminal justice issues, uh, very much asking for a whole new way of looking at uh, criminal justice and the prosecution, the routine prosecutions of black people. And now all of a sudden she's anti-defund the police. So there has been a definite uh, backlash, I feel, uh, in Illinois and Chicago, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, what about in Utah? What was the response to on the part of the larger uh, Mormon white community uh, that exists to sort of the protests that you were covering and the, and the coverage that you offered. Same. I mean, you know, it's all about like, like current and counter current, right? So that, that was a lot of the same people referring to, to activists and, and organizers who were um, committed to enact change, re- referring to them as thugs or, or terrorists, or um, you know, whatever, whatever the, the the case might be. But I think what the movement did here is that it it lit a spark that that hadn't been here before, and it woke up a lot of people to be aware of of um, you know, even people outside. You know, mostly you know, a lot of the times, the majority of the people attending these protests, and I'm talking protests in the thousands you know, 3,000, 4,000, some of these protests, the bigger ones, um, were primarily white. So it also, you know, lit a fire under their ass as to what allyship really looks like and what community aid really looks like. So, so yeah, there, there were a lot of people just discounting the movement right off the bat. I think that happens with every movement. Uh, but it still managed to, to, you know, carve its way into, into everyday life, particularly yes, during that summer. Um, and 
um, it was it was something else to see. I mean, it was something else to see in Salt Lake City, Utah, outside the city and county building, which is essentially a city hall. You know, a police car, a, a cruiser car being lit on fire and flipped over, which made national news because, again, this is Utah. That doesn't happen here. So a lot of comments, you know, just, just brandishing um, activists, community organizers, and people attending these these rallies and these protests as just the worst of the worst. But it was a change that 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 needed to be happen that that needed to happen. Um, I think, um, you know, and 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 the leader at the time of Black Lives Matter Utah, Lex Scott, was the first one to say behind her megaphone, "We don't condone acts of violence. We don't condone the destruction of prop of, of uh, public property. Like, let them let them like try to get us on something, but it's not going to be that." So, um, so yeah, it, it was it was just literally across the board. But talk about just like a moment in time, right? And to have covered it, to have been in the ground as a journalist was was just something else. It's something that that for sure I will never forget. And in fact, um, you know, just going back, sort of like tying it into um, my 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 job now at the Reader, the fact that it, uh, you know one of the biggest selling points for me to to accept this job was this new um, social justice reporting hub that the reader is launching next spring. So that was so up my wheelhouse. And I said, okay, not only do I get to be editor of the reader, but I get to be founding editor of this project within, within the, the, the auspices of the reader. Hell yeah. Sign me up. So um, that, that's something that, that I hold near and dear because again, you know, in the very beginning of my career, like I, 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 I didn't have that. I didn't have an editor trusting me to, to do much, outside of my, you know, my, my, my little box. Um, so the fact that, that I'm now, you know, able to assign myself as it were, um, these, these beats, um, or, or, or these instances for coverage really means a lot, really means a lot to me. Talk about that social justice beat and, uh, what you hope to accomplish the goals, sort of, uh, your expectations, your thoughts about it in general, go ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, it's going to be, it's, it's sort of like a desk. It's a one person desk. We have a fantastic reporter by the name of Kelly Garcia, who recently won emerging reporter of the year at the Chicago journalism awards. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Back in the day, you also won a similar award from the CGA. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I won it. There was a time, ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not. Yes, indeed. I was an emerging journalist. Oh my God. It was a long time ago. Then I, then I, yeah, yeah, no, you go through a lot of phases with the award. Kelly's awesome, by the way, and she will be our guest next week. Just ladies and gentlemen, actually, wait, hold it. Let me get my days. Yeah, next week. I'm all turned around and twisted around. She'll be, uh, we'll be doing uh, sort of an automatic preview. Uh, Kelly Garcia will be a guest on the show uh, Tuesday, next Tuesday. I have to get my days, Enrique, uh, because I'm all mixed up. The dyslexia is really kicking in here. Oh, uh, but, I hear you. Uh, Kelly and I will be going through all the aldermanic uh, candidates, who's running, who's not running, et cetera, and so forth. So, yeah, awesome reporter, Kelly Garcia. She's the one who broke the story about Paul Vallis going to that awake meeting. Right on, Kelly Garcia. Anyway, uh, go ahead with your uh, narrative. Yeah, that so, country. you know, just the, 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 uh, the opportunity to work alongside a young journalist who, who, who has so much, you know, steam behind her, who, who has this drive, who reminds me of, of me as well back in the day. It's going to be fantastic. And then there's also going to be the opportunity to add uh, a fellowship component to it as well, which of course is very near and dear to me based on my past, because I don't have a traditional, you know, journalism background. I wasn't afforded that. Um, and so I, I, I think that, that it, it's going to be just again, another opportunity for the reader to turn a little bit on a dime and offer something else and let people know, yep, we're still here. Yes, we're still here indeed. We're not going anywhere either. Uh, and um, all right, uh, so it is Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving. And, uh, uh, even though technically it's Saturday, but you're hearing this on Thanksgiving. All right, let's, let me get over that one, that dis, uh, dissonance there in my brain. Um, so any great uh, Thanksgiving stories? uh that you want to share any like particular things that you're thankful for uh at this uh moment in time that you want to share maybe uplift people uh make people laugh or make people cry whatever uh, the mic is yours you know funny enough i don't have many if any thanksgiving stories from my childhood because um that's not something that we celebrated in tijuana thanksgiving was you know very much a, a uh, uh, an American celebration. And so it was very much foreign, um, to, to us. 
And, um, and, and I remember as a little kid, you know, I, I would hear about certain friends in school who would celebrate it. Uh, and I would be like, Oh God, you poser. Like it means nothing <laughs> to you. We're in TJ. This means nothing. I, I like, I literally remember one of my friends who would like be like, well, we're going to have, you know, and it's like, Turkey Day, pronounced like that, because it's not even Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah, we're going to have the, you know, La Cena para Turkey Day. And I'd be like, oh, please. Like, you can't, you don't even know what the name. Like, I was like, <laughs> like, you, know, like you know, like screaming as like a little kid. Like, come on, uh, you're fake. But, but, uh, so we didn't celebrate Thanksgiving whatsoever. You know, of course, I'm aware of it. And, and I wish that I would have, you know, been a little kid in school to get to do the little hand turkey, like all those things that are like sort of like in the pop culture zeitgeist around Thanksgiving. But, um, along with its problematic nature, let's say, you know, let's, let's call it out. But, I did not grow up with that whatsoever. So I saw it as uh, a, a Christmas ruiner. Like, why would I <laughs> want to do that? Because Christmas was such a huge deal at our house, you know, and that's the day you get to eat turkey, uh, which was like, you know, my, my late grandmother's recipe. Like, why would I want to soil it by, by, by having, you know, a second iteration of it like a month before? No, no. I was like, you know, I'm not sure that I was anti-Thanksgiving as a kid, but certainly it wasn't something that was just part of what we did. So it wasn't until, you know, most of the family started moving. Uh, and now most everyone is in San Diego. They started, they, they started like trickling over uh, that we started gathering for it because um, then it wasn't about, uh, you know, the fact that we've, you know, it's a tradition. We've just done it for so long that we got to, you know, we got to keep up with it. We got to keep doing it. It was because we wanted to get together and because we wanted to, um, you know, be together as a family and give thanks. Um, I think that 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 is, you know, if, if there is a net positive to take away from it is just that sort of like like taking stock of where you're, you're at. And and, um, you know, we all have hardships. We all have uh, bad stuff. We all have ugliness. We all have of vicissitudes, but, you know, to just really take pause and say like, Oh, I'm thankful for this, or I'm thankful for the fact that, um, you know, my, my mom is still around, for example, or I'm, I'm thankful for the fact that, you know, when the pandemic hit particularly, I, I think that we did do a zoom Thanksgiving that year. So that might, you know, like many, many people did, but again, for us, because, you know, we hadn't done it forever. It was, it was sort of like extra odd and extra special. Um, you know, main dinner here and when my, and my like small two bedroom apartment with all the fixings, um, including, of course, I don't care if I get hate on this, it has to be canned cranberry jelly sauce. Because that's what <laughs> like. yeah. If it doesn't have the visible ripples, I don't want it. Get away from it. Yeah. I'm talking like bottom of the shelf, Jewel Osco. Like, don't give me any of that fancy whole food stuff. <laughs> I don't want it. I don't want organic on that. Trust me. It needs to have those marks because that's how my dad liked it. And so, um, so yeah, so we went all out. And, and I just remember that year in particular being very thankful because seeing the effect that this, this new thing, this pandemic was having, um, not, not just on people of a certain age, you know, we were all like, like really guarding uh, my mom, but um, just in, in black and brown families because of lack of information, um, it was staggering. So the fact that, that during that time, you know, my family didn't reduce, thank God, like we, we multiplied, we, you know, welcome my, my first um, great nephew into the family, you know, I'm, I'm an uncle of 10. Uh, I was a very young uncle, I think I became an uncle because I, I came, I'm the youngest of five in my family. And I came after 10 years. So um, I'm actually closer in age to my nieces and nephews than than my siblings. So, uh, you know, to have that experience of having been a really young uncle and now to be a great uncle and the fact that that happened during this god-awful moment in history wherein families were just being decimated. I mean, you know, it's something that I'm still very thankful for. And the family has grown since. And and now I'm at the reader of all places. So, yeah, there's a lot to be thankful this year, I would say. Um I'm, I'm going to see if I'm able to to escape. You might be hearing this and, and I might be physically in San Diego at the time. I'll, I'll let you know. Um, but, but I don't lose track of that. Just the fact that, that across everything, across the hardships, across there, there's, there's still always going to be something to be thankful for. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for, for a lot this year. Well, I really hope that you make it to San Diego, uh, for Thanksgiving. And, uh, I'm probably talking out a story that I want to write up for my next newsletter piece as I say this. So just, you're going to be my therapist here. Uh, and uh, everybody needs one. Uh, Lord knows I do. Um, but uh, t- 
to me, you know, I, I was the opposite of you. I grew up in a, a very small family, uh, so our Thanksgiving dinners were generally smaller. And as time, then, like, if you have five siblings or four siblings, there's five of you all together. It's already seven people, and grand, if the grandmothers are, I mean, already you're filling it up, okay? Uh, so my, so many memories of very small uh, gatherings around a table, uh, and uh, it just, I didn't have, like, the right, you know, I just, I, I kind of want, like, a, a, a size matters in this instance, if you get what I'm saying. You know what I mean? <laughs> that old debate, size matters. Yeah, in this instance, I have a lot of people around a table. Uh, it, it, it's very helpful. Uh, and um, so I say this all the time. My kids are grown up. They've moved on. They, you know, I have grandkid, and uh, they all live in Cali. So when I go there for Thanksgiving, we haven't been able to go there in a while because of the pandemic. It's all these millennials, Enrique, you know? And I'm like, I always like, I get so emotional and weepy because it's like all these freaking people around a table. I'm like, yeah, this is how you're supposed to have Thanksgiving, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it definitely adds to it. And there is nothing, along with all the dysfunction that goes along with it, there is nothing like just having a large gathering for those occasions. Uh, and yeah, it, it's funny, you know, it, it used to mean something. It used to shock people when I would tell them that I was the youngest of five. But then I happened to move to Utah and it was nothing. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm the second of 12. And I'd be like, what the, what? God. True. And yeah, so, but yes, the big families, big families, big boisterous, you know, conversations funny moments. I mean, sometimes we break out in song, not like an actual, like, like, you know, like a pop song of the moment. Like, you know, it's just, it's, it's one of those opportunities when all of us are together. And when, and when I mean all of us, you know, it's like 25 or something, you know, the nieces, the nephews, the significant, significant others now, you know, et cetera. Like, um, you know, it's 20 plus. So it's just always just all over the place and in the best kind of way. Um, but yeah, that is one of the things that that I appreciate the most. I mean, yeah, because you compare that to again what everyone's twenty twenty Thanksgiving might have looked like, and, and it's you know a stark difference. A few years prior, I think I did a Thanksgiving uh, just because I ended up being there for the weekend at Zion National Park, and like you know cooking like on a tent, cooking like stuffing on an open flame, and trying to to thaw out <laughs> this uh, this. Uh, whatever it was, uh, uh, Jenny O or something, turkey breast, just like, you know, on, on, on a pan, on an open, it was, it was, that was memorable too. Wait, how many people yeah. for that one at design? Yeah, just my partner at the time and myself, like, Oh, just two. It okay. Just, it was just us so here's the deal. Here's the rule of thumb for me on Thanksgiving. If it's just two people and during, uh, the pandemic, it was just me and my wife, no traditional Thanksgiving. We're getting Chinese. All right. There oh, you go. Okay. <laughs> And especially hot, spicy Chinese. You know, if, I'm, if it's just two people, no Thanksgiving. With the, that's my rule, okay? See, and, and I cannot help but to be caught up on the pomp and circumstance. Like, yes, and we're wearing sweaters. You know, <laughs> like it's one of those things. Just because I didn't have that, maybe I'm compensating now uh, for all those Thanksgivings that I didn't get to enjoy. But, uh, but yeah, it, 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 it can be a magical time, you know? Absolutely. Uh, all right. We're going to close it down by talking a little reader swag. Uh, you're wearing the super cool shirt. This uh, sweatshirt is, is that available? Cause if it is, I'm getting one. That uh, is available. I'm going to take a picture of it. You just described the listeners what it is. <laughs> yes. This is a zip up hoodie. It's so now, now it's like, I'm like, I'm like peddling it, but I was just wearing it today. It's a, it's a reader emblazoned zip up hoodie. Uh, super plush, super comfy. And I'm actually also wearing, I don't know if you can see it, but I'm wearing a reader pen. Oh yeah. So I see the backward R reader pen. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But I, I, you know, first time I, I visited, I got swagged out. I have, you know, all the reader, all the reader merch you can imagine. I have a hat over there. I have a reporter's notebook. All that is available on, on the reader website. A lot of people don't know about that, but it's cool. And then this sweatshirt in the back has all the different iterations of, of the masthead of the logo. And so it's it's nice. It's it's make it makes a statement. I am definitely going to get a that sweatshirt and I'll wear it whenever I go to Cali. Because you know what the funny thing is, uh, I wear I tend to wear like it's so weird. I mean, again, my therapist, thank you. Um, so oh my god, it's snowing out. I looked out the window. It's snowing. What a city! It's snowing, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, uh, so 
like I always complain about Chicago when I'm here. I'm always complaining about the politicians and bemoaning the decisions that voters make. And and yet when I leave Chicago, I'm like screaming Chicago. I'm wearing a bull's hat and I got a reader sweatshirt on. And I'm like, yeah, I'm from Chicago. People go, are you from Chicago? And go, oh, yeah, how'd you know? Well, I don't know. Maybe the bull's hat, the bull's phone, the reader sweatshirt. <laughs> so it's like a schizophrenic cry for yeah. out there. No, I dig it. Hey, you got to represent. Yeah, you got to represent. His, I'm going to get that one. It's got it's got the reader box, ladies and gentlemen. I love it. Like a, a news box where readers um, uh, would be uh, available on every street corner. Enrique, thank you so much uh, for uh, being our Thanksgiving Day show. And uh, congratulations on the new gig. Best of luck, because if you succeed, we succeed. And yes. uh, that alternative voice in Chicago uh, will live and in my humble opinion we do need alternatives to the mainstream uh i've dedicated my career to that and uh so onward and upward is what i say uh, so uh best of luck to you enrique thank you so much ben i really appreciate the invitation all right i think he's going to be a regular on the show ladies and gentlemen uh so i'm going to be t- twisting his arm as the year unfolds hurry come, come i need you back on the show uh, all right, Enrique, thank you very much. I want to thank uh, DJ Nate, uh, who's sitting in uh, for Dennis today on our Thanksgiving show. And DJ Nate, as we always say, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Have a really great Thanksgiving, everybody. know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry-free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator